The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, welcome to the uh, second proteins. Just as with the RNA analyses, we started with, in that case, with a brief discussion of RNA structure and then moved on to RNA quantitation. In this case, we spent a, a, a bit more time on protein structure uh, and we'll spend a little less time on protein quantitation, which will be the main topic today. But partly because the RNA, the RNA and protein quantitation have many themes in common, so we've covered some of those. And we'll talk about how one can integrate protein quantitation with uh, RNA with, with uh, RNA quantitation and with, um, and with metabolism. So last time we talked about uh, mainly with structure and interaction of proteins with small molecules at the structural level, and this time we'll, we'll be building up towards the uh, quantitating proteins and their interactions with, with uh, other proteins and small molecules so that we can address that uh, as the first step towards uh, the network analysis will be the subject of the last three lectures of the course. So we'll get a hint of that at the end of uh, today's talk. So in the, uh, at the beginning of the course, I had one slide talking about how purification was a revolution in many different fields, uh, one of them resulting in recombinant DNA and the genome project and so on. Today we're going to talk more about purification standpoint from what does it tell us about the properties of the molecule itself as, oppo as opposed to just purifying for its own sake. How can we go in and data mine and get the maximum value out of purification? The sort of things that we expect from purification is to reduce some source of noise. That is to say, in the process of identification or quanti quantitation of proteins or their components, uh, we want to remove uh, sources of, the major source of noise would be environmental contamination or more often contamination with other bona fide members of a mixture, other proteins that may be very abundant or breakdown products or related products. And we want to se separate it into enough different components so that the major ones are off in their own little bin and don't interfere too much. So the second, the second reason why, why we might want to purify is to prepare materials for in vitro experiments. When we're studying networks in the next three classes, we'll find that the real problem is that they're complicated enough that you need some way of uh, isolating one network component from all the possible interactions. And one way to do that is to purify that network component or a number of network components out and make a subnetwork completely artificially in vitro. So that's another use of purification. And finally, and this is the, the main theme for the next couple of slides, is to discover biochemical properties about that component itself. So what can you glean from the purification process? And this requires careful use of purification. Now many of these methods were developed because they, they worked well. But now we go back and we look at which ones can give us information about the biology and the chemistry of the system. And so we have uh, the the uh, charge of a molecule, which we talked about last time as being a very important, long range, relatively long-range interaction, uh, 1 over R interaction. And here, uh, two methods are mentioned, one involving electric field, isoelectric focusing, which uh, determines 
the pH at which the charge is neutral and, and there's no net movement. In ion exchange chromatography, we have a mobile phase and a solid phase, and, uh, and charge enters prominently into that. Size is something that will be a recurring theme tonight. Uh, we'll be talking about the mass of protein complexes, the mass of individual protein subunits, and the mass of peptides cleaved out of those basic subunits. And you can see there are quite a number of different methods. Sedimentation velocity we will, uh, will be one that we will use, uh, gel electrophoresis, and, uh, and so on. Solubility and hydrophobicity I'll lump together here as uh, properties, kind of bulk properties of the amino acid composition of peptides and proteins. Uh, they they uh, refer to, the, to their affinity for uh, hydrophobic solid phases or uh, hydrophobic um, mobile phases, uh, solvents, and so on. Uh, these, the biological significance of, of hydrophobicity might be the uh, affinity for lipid, uh, lipid bilayers or affinity for other hydrophobic patches and other proteins. Now we have uh, the size tells us something about the stoichiometry of protein-protein protein interactions when we're looking at native um, uh, measures of, of size of complexes. And other indications of specific binding, whether it's between proteins or protein in a small molecule, can be detected by affinity chromatography. Or another related method is immune precipitation, where you will, uh, or uh, where you'll have one ligand, like an antibody, which is specific for a particular protein epitope, and will pull down all the proteins that are associated with that um, epitope, that surface. Uh, property. And then another sedimentation method, now this, the, the first sedimentation method was a velocity method, a kinetic method, where the, the, the largest particles, um, once you take into account buoyant density, is all other things being equal, the largest particles will sediment quick, most quickly. If you set it up so that things are nearly equal, uh, buoyant and you build up a density gradient uh, by a centrifugal field, then you get a uh, particles separating by their uh, properties, which can include the binding of, of um, metal ions, which greatly affect the density of nucleic acids, for example, and hence nucleic acid protein complexes. Okay, now this is, this is a particularly awesome pair, and uh, historically figures prominently into proteomics. Uh, it's uh, still quite viable. And they illustrate some important points. When we talk about the mass of a uh, of a native protein or of a, of a protein that's been denatured by a detergent micelle such as sodium dodecyl sulfate (SDS), uh, its its mass can be resolved by the, by fairly potent uh, polyacrylamide gel electrophoresis where you get sieving, where the, the, the gel causes sieving, and this micelle of, this detergent micelle size itself of the micelle is dependent upon the size of the unfolded or partially full unfolded protein chain. And so uh, you actually get fairly good uh, calibratable uh, plot of mass of the protein versus the mobility in an electric field when it, the protein embeds itself in this detergent um, uh, uh, micelle. And 
So this observation this, uh, of uh, de the, the potent ability of this detergent to denature proteins and then to resolve based on mass with the small exceptions of very hydrophobic proteins or very carbohydrate-rich proteins, most other proteins will, will have a very nice um, calibratable relationship. Similarly, the charge on a protein uh, approaches zero as, it's, as the pH gets to the point where it's titrating out all the titratable groups, and this can be calculated, and the resolution of this is about one part in a hundred or better. So both of these together are two very um, high-resolution methods, and you can think of trying to divide the, the you have a, a complex protein mixture, you want to divide it up into a lot of separate bins, maybe a hundred of each. And if you combine two dimensions, as you, as you often do here, where you'll run uh, first isoelectric and then second the SDS dimension, now you get 100 bins in one dimension, and each of those bins turns into 100 bins in the second dimension. So theoretically, you get on the order of 10 to the fourth bins. And uh, if some of the things that you want to, some of the rare proteins you want to analyze are in one of those bins, you might have gotten as much as a 10 to the fourth fold enrichment for those rare proteins away from the more common ones, which are all too easy to stumble upon. Now, before we get to an actual example of a two-dimensional gel, I want to motivate this by, by the computational components to it and the computational biology that you can get from these multi-dimensional separations. And this comes from our uh, recurring interest in comparing whenever we can calculate a property of a system or of a, in this case of a protein, we do so and we compare it with the observations. And the properties, uh, some of the properties here are the localization in the cell, which essentially is an association of the protein as it's made, the post-synthetic modifications to the proteins, such as proteolysis and phosphorylation and so on, it's uh, charge and its, and its mass. And here is shown a plot of c calculated charge or isoelectric point um, in pH units, P, P being negative logarithm of the hydrogen ion concentration. So it's calculated on the horizontal axis and observed on the vertical axis. And what we're seeing here is if there were perfect x equal y relationship here, where calculated and observed were the same, then all the dots would lie on, the, on this line. And though the outliers originally, initially they were uh, such things as frame shifts in the DNA sequence producing a, a wrong calculated protein. Once those were corrected, then, the, then there were observed proteolytic cleavages, which could be mapped down to the exact amino acid, and then those corrected a few more onto the line, and the remainders were, were other post-synthetic modifications, such as phosphorylation. So here's a reason to embrace your outliers. Each one of these things is, a, is an exciting story where you either have a correction to uh, a previous uh, data type or a, a, a new discovery of a post-synthetic modification. <coughs> now, how do we actually calculate all these uh, facts about protein properties? Some of these have biological <coughs> significance, which, which, we, which we've listed. Uh, where it is in the cell obviously matters to its carrying out its function. How, how big it is determines what other proteins associate and so on. So how do we calculate this? The protein charge, which was in the previous slide, is a simple linear function where you sum up the pKa's of each of the individual amino acids. Now pKa, again, P means negative logarithm, and the Ka 
means just the uh, equilibrium association constant of the proton with each of these ch chargeable residues. So depending on the pH, uh, there are a wide variety of nearly physiological pHs where arginine, lysines, and histidines will be positively charged, the, the blues, and the, the red ones can be uh, tyrosine, cysteine, especially aspartate and, and uh, glutamate, can be negatively charged in the range of pHs that we saw on the previous slide. And uh, so this is calculated as that simple sum. And uh, protein mass is, is calibratable with knowns. Uh, even if you have a very complex empirical relationship, such as that detergent binding uh, SDS gel electrophoresis, sounds very uh, too many moving parts to be completely theoretical. But if you calibrate it with good known uh, proteins or protein complexes, if you're doing a native uh, electrophoresis or native sedimentation velocity, then you can uh, then you can get a, a curve where you can interpolate and find masses quite accurately, or at least which were in about two percent. By mass spectrometry is commonly applied to peptide masses, sometimes whole protein masses. And here, this, if the, assuming the mass spectrometer is properly calibrated and so forth, this is a simple isotope sum. And this can be carried out sometimes to four or six significant figures. And, uh, and it really is a simple sum of the, of the uh, physics, uh, of the isotopes measured by physics. And this can include post-synthetic modifications. As you're getting down to peptides, a post-synthetic modification becomes a much larger fractional effect on, on the uh, measures that you're making. Uh, the, not only the mass, but the liquid chromatography properties of either protein or peptide are, are, can be calculated. Here you take amino acid composition and you do linear regression on a calibration set, and you can get um, the precision on the order of 5% or better. Subcellular localization, we have motifs. A sometimes hydrophobicity is a part of those motifs in their description. Expression would not be something, you know, we've seen the, the motifs that are involved in regulation of transcription and so forth, but kind of a shortcut that, that, that might take you directly there um, in certain cases is the codon adaptation index. This is something that set that's where the hypothesis is that you can go directly from the nucleotide sequence of a protein coding region, and if it uses codons that are very abundant, that correspond to very abundant transfer RNAs, then that protein, then that's saying that the evolutionary pressures producing that particular choice of codons is revealing that that protein is going to be high abundance. So in a way, this is a way of going directly um, without, uh, due to this observation that, uh, and somewhat logical uh, expectation. Okay, so now we have all sorts of separation methods and motivation for studying them more than just using them. But now we want to look at particular ca case of separation. We're talking about complexes and protein localization. So, you know, I, 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 this here is the uh, our, uh, example of a two-dimensional, another example of a two-dimensional gel. Uh, where the isoelectric uh, point is on the x-axis here and the vertical axis is this estimate of 
molecular mass provided by the association of the protein with the SDS mice cells and that effect on gel electrophoresis. And this is a, this is a 2D gel, uh, a, a small section of it, not, not the full pH range nor the full molecular weight range, but this uh, has a, a good fraction of the proteins that, have been, that are secreted. Now, to what extent can we calculate this? We've shown a number of calculations and observations so far. And we pointed out uh, in last class that to some extent the transmembrane regions of a protein could, this is one of the better algorithms in, in protein sequence gazing. And taking that one step further, you can actually say, okay, we know that this might have a, a motif or two that interact with membranes or somehow are, are part of the process by which proteins are targeted and uh, move across membranes so that you can divide it into several different uh, subcellular localizations. The in eukaryotes, the mitochondrial localization, the chloroplast in plants, uh, so in plant, uh, secreted proteins that go all the way across the plasma membrane and other locations such as within the membrane. And this can be, uh, have an 85% success rate, meaning a 15% false negative, and you can see modest uh, false positives here, two over predictions in uh, 295 transmembranes. Okay, so let's return to mass, and this time in the context of mass spectrometry. What do we have? What um, what's our starting point? Well, if you look on the far left side of slide 11, you'll see the, the simplest of the atoms, hydrogen, and you would expect this to have an atomic mass of 1. Well, since carbon 12 is assumed to be precisely 12, it turns out that hydrogen is not precisely 1 when you actually measure it. Um, and it's not even good enough for government standards. Uh, when you, when you actually, uh, you know, say add a CH2, it adds up to 14, and that is discriminatable from a nitrogen 14 with a good enough mass spectrometer. As it turns out, for most uh, biochemical anal pro protein analyses, you don't depend on uh, those, lap those the sixth decimal point. You can get away really with, uh, or certainly don't depend on having the, uh, 10 to the minus 3 atomic mass units as your resolution. But you do depend upon, in a much, in a say, a, a kilodalton-sized peptide, being able to get, um, uh, you know, one part in 10 to the fourth, one atomic mass unit. Another big consideration here is that not only are these things not exactly integers, but they, uh, in natural abundance, they're a mixture of the major isotope on the far left and the second, and, and sometimes third and fourth stable isotopes, not usually non-radioactive isotopes, um, which are present in nature. And the, mo the most abundant in this particular list is C13, and it's most abundant in two senses. One is it's the highest uh, fractional abundance of any of these elements, and, as a, and secondly, carbon itself is very common in peptides. If you, have a, if you cleave your protein up with trypsin, which cleaves uh, C-terminal to lysines and arginines, you'll get on the order of uh, you know, 10 of 10 or 20 of these peptides per protein, and they might be 10 amino acids long, and so they might have on the order of 40 carbons in them. And so 
so that now the fractional abundance of C13 in the, in, with 40 carbons is getting close to, to uh, unity. And, uh, and we'll see an example of exactly how this plays out in terms of uh, the multiple combinations of isotopes that can occur. Sulfur, on the other hand, has more stable isotopes. It has four different stable isotopes, but each one is a fairly small fraction, and the probability of having a sulfur in a given peptide is, is low. Much, I mean, that's probably having one sulfur. Probably having 40 sulfurs is vanishingly small. Okay, so we've gone through uh, calculating all these uh, charge mass. Now we're going to do liquid chromatography, in particular hydrophobic uh, measures. And this all funds, falls under the heading of high performance liquid chromatography, or, uh, which is achieved under high pressure, typically, to, uh, to, get, to get it to go rapidly. And so you'll have these little, you'll, have a, you'll digest your protein with trypsin, you get a series of these peptides, say uh, 10 amino acids or so, and then they're injected in a liquid phase, they bind to the solid phase by the hydrophobic properties, um, you might have it, uh, and, then, and then, you'll ha then you'll have a readout where, as a function of time, you get abundance where the peaks can be measured by mass or um, ion counting and so on. And these can either be collected or simply run into a mass spectrometer. There are going to be two phases, the mobile phase and the solid phase. Talk about the mobile phase first. We uh, have the hydrophobic tendency of any given peptide is, is going to be some kind of related to the sum of the individual amino acid components. Now you can either have isocratic illusion where you have basically constant migration speed, no change in the content of the mobile phase, or you can have the mobile phase change its composition, say for something that's almost entirely water at the beginning, to something that has a high organic con content you know, you know, up to 40% or so acetonitrile. And so that at the end of the gradient, even the most hydrophobic peptides now have just as much affinity for the mobile phase as for the solid phase, and they come uh, flowing on. Solid phase has a number of different options. The main one we've been talking about, implicitly at least, is the reverse phase, where you have um, the hydrophobic, say, carbon-18 alkyl chains immobilized to a highly porous uh, media or, or, um, in, a, in, a, uh, in, a, in a column that can withstand high pressure. And then, uh, or it can have differing polarities, size exclusion, same sort of things um, that we were talking about with electrophoresis, except now the, the, the force is not an electric field, but it's simply the uh, pressure differential between the injection port and the output. Okay. So here is a specific case, worked out example, of how you calculate the affinity of peptides um, to a uh, hydrophobic column. This is a C18 column, referring to the number of carbons uh, in the alkyl chain. So you can see that this is like a kind of a lipid type phase. It's the sort of thing you might see in the middle of a lipid bilayer membrane, and you have in this plot you have relative retention time along the, the vertical axis, and residue number refers to having short uh, peptides cleaved, uh, sort of walking along the protein. These have been synthesized so that they march along the proteins 
very analogous to how we, uh, in an earlier class, we, uh, Rosetta made synthetic oligonucleotides marching along the human genome. And this was done in order to calibrate uh, to see how the composition, the amino acid composition of a peptide might affect its, its mobility and allow you to calculate it. And so what you end up with here is a, is it a somewhat intuitive uh, way of, of summing the contributions of each of these amino acids. Now remember this is done under fairly uh, acidic conditions, so the, the, the normally uh, charged acid groups will now have be protonated and be neutral. And so uh, what we'll find is mainly a spectrum from the very slowest to be eluted. They require the most organic and then hence the most, the longest retention time would be the hydropho highly hydrophobic aromatics, tryptophan and phenylalanine have, uh, have a component which you obtain by linear regression of each of these peptides. You know the sequence of these peptides, you calculate their composition vector, and then you relate it to the retention time that's observed. So the, the lower plot is the observed ones, and then after you do the regression, you get a set of these coefficients. You can now plug them in in an additive sense to make this calculated plot, and you can see that there's very good correlation up and down. It might, be, it might have been better if these authors had done this as a, as a uh, plot of calculated versus observed, as we did in the previous one, and then showed the scatter and did a re regression curve, but you get the idea. And so the most hydrophobic ones are at the top, and the ones that are acid conditions are the most highly charged. So the positively charged ones, the lysine, the histine, and arginine down here at the bottom, and the acidic ones, since they're not they're no, close to neutral or near zero here. And uh, there's a slight effect as to whether the amino acid is at the end terminus or not. Okay. So now we've calculated the reverse phase behavior here on the far left-hand side of slide 17. It's, uh, and this is separated by hydrophobicity. And then we have mass, which we've uh, outlined how you can calculate the mass. So now you can calculate both its hydrophobicity on the vertical axis of the mass and the horizontal. And you can make this, uh, in the computer, this uh, two-dimensional plot. In this case, this is actually observed data, but you could also superimpose on that the calculated ones. These are slightly streakier in the reverse uh, phase retention time, RT, um, just because of the scale that one uses or the properties of the, of the uh, separation method. Now, if you, blow, if you take one of these little two-dimensional two spots and, and zoom in on it and look at it in, in greater detail, you see that it actually is, is a complex set of peaks in the mass direction and fairly simple in the, in the retention time. Now you could say, well, maybe these are all different peptides, but in fact, and they are in a certain sense, but they're trivial relatives of this that you, where you need to, to think where you can data mine and get additional information. So each of these is uh, separate, are, are separate isotope peaks, meaning remember that it might have 40 carbons in this peptide, and so, so it's going to be a binomial distribution where this is the, the case where you have zero carbon 13s. In other words, it's all carbon 12s. And the next peak over to the right uh, is going to have one carbon 13. The next peak over is going to have two carbon 13s and N minus 2, where N is the total number of carbons in that peptide, which will be carbon 12, the most abundant one, and so on. And you get every possible combination in a, in a binomial distribution just as you would expect. 
Now, what does this tell you? It tells you at least two things. One is the distance between these, you can see here, is a half an atomic mass unit. Well, how do we get a half an atomic mass unit? I mean, they're supposed to be... I mean, we know they're not perfect integers, but this is way off. And the, the, the reason is, is because what's actually measured is the mass over charge. You're not measuring the mass, mass over charge. And so this is saying is this particular peptide has a plus two charge state. That's an important fact. It's going to be hard to interpret uh, its mass if you don't know its charge, because it's m over z that's measured. Uh, the other thing that's measured is from the exact binomial distribution, you can get an estimate of the number of carbons in there. Because if there are a huge number of carbons, then it will then turn out that one of the secondary peaks here, the, the, one of the right, right word peaks, will actually be the most abundant one. If it has a small number of carbons, then the zero carbon 13's peak will be the all-around winner. And so from the, the relative heights of, of, of zero, one, and two, you can estimate the number of carbons. So the two facts you can get from this sort of high-resolution view of, of that peak. Okay, so now we've got uh, these two phases, these two dimensions pretty well in, in hand, the reverse phase and the mass. Now we're going to add another dimension, actually a couple more dimensions. One is another peptide dimension, which is uh, strong cation exchange, SCX. Uh, what this means is the peptides will have different cationic properties, different charges, and they will bind to different extents to this and you, and you can put these in tandem, either physically or conceptually. You'll run one, take a bunch of fractions, and then put it on the reverse phase. The reverse phase literally is, is physically connected to the mass spectrometer. Um, and then we'll talk about some, some upstream. Now, upstream uh, separation methods. Before you fra fragment it into peptides, you can separate, you can have dimensions on the proteins, which can tell you about the complexes. So let's go through a specific example of complexes. So if you take entire yeast proteome, grind up yeast, throw it on a, a first separation dimension, which is the uh, sedimentation velocity. Remember there's equilibrium and velocity. Velocity is mainly responsive to the size of the complex. This is a native dimension. We're not denaturing with SDS. Native and so you'll see the things that go absolutely the fastest in the cell um, and among the most abundant are the uh, ribosomes and the ribosomal subunits. This is done under conditions where you just tease apart the two ribosomal subunits so that they are, uh, uh, they're separated. And the, the bigger of the two is called 60S. S refers to Sedberg, who was one of the uh, pioneers of sedimentation velocity. And this uh, can be correlated, the, the, the rate at which it goes down this, this uh, stabilized gradient centrifugal field is related to this, the complex. And then, so that's the first dimension is horizontally sedimentation, at the very top uh, axis going horizontally is sedimentation. And then going down uh, is, uh, is SDS gel electrophoresis. So now you're taking these native complexes and breaking them up into their component proteins. And where uh, high molecular weight is up and low molecular weight is down, and you can see that there are quite a number of proteins in each of these two subunits, the 60S and the 40S. Now each of these proteins, so that's, so that's the second dimension, now you cleave it into peptides, and you analyze the peptides by retention time and, well, the three dimensions, uh, strong cation exchange, retention time, and mass. 
And then you add a fourth one, which we'll, talk, we'll develop a little later, where you can actually break up the peptides into little pieces. So you can identify which protein, which protein each of the peptides came from. Now, unfortunately, not all peptides are equal in their ionization potential. And so if, if it ionizes poorly, you won't detect a, a particular peptide from a protein. If you detect a large number of peptides from a protein, that probably means that it's abundant in your sample or your fraction. And it also means that you can believe that the, the computer identification of that protein is probably pretty solid. So if you get five or more peptides from a particular protein in your database search, and we'll talk in just a moment about how you do that database search, um, then you believe it. And it's very solid. And so if you look at this, you can see that all these, as you look at the essentially the protein fingerprint for each of the 60S fractions in the sedimentation, they look pretty similar. And when you run out the mass spec, you get similar sets of, of uh, peptide signatures. And they correspond to the, most of them, the, especially the most abundant ones, correspond to, to the known 60S proteins. If you go a little bit uh, uh, slower, you know, less mass, the 40S subunits, and you analyze the sequences, so the mass spec signatures for those peptides, and they mainly turn up 40S. There's some exceptions in both. There's some, some other categories which may be interesting. The most, the most uh, interesting in this particular study, the authors highlighted, was uh, YMR116P, which, remember, this is a very mature field. This is a very recent study, and ribosomes were very well characterized, and I think we had the conceit that at least in microbial systems such as E. coli and yeast, we really understood all the proteins that were required to make a ribosome hum. But here was a new ribosomal protein, which has since been um, confirmed that this is a uh, bona fide part of the 40S subunit. You can see here it had many peptide hits, so it was a, a, a equal in abundance to the other 40S subunit proteins. Okay. So here we had, in a certain sense, uh, five or so dimensions, the sedimentation, which is the native complex size, the denatured protein subunit size, the peptide ionic, ionic uh, um, uh, the, the, the ion exchange, the peptide mass, and the peptide fragmentation. So when we talk about fragmentation, that's what MSMS sometimes means. It means that you're doing first mass separation of the peptide, you break it up and you do another mass separation of the component parts. And that allows us to do database searching and sequencing of the peptides. Now how this works, this is a blow up of something that was in an earlier slide where you can really see the re region where you've got electrospray. We'll have an even closer blow up of this in a moment. But basically, the, your reverse phase liquid chromatography is going directly into this vacuum here, generating a little spray at uh, 4,000 volts. <laughs> And then these, uh, these molecular ions will go through the vacuum through a series of um, magnetic octopoles until it uh, hits an ion trap, which helps you determine the, the M over Z, and finally a detector. You can see there's a variety of different pressures in here, sort of increasing pressure from the point where you have the aqueous solvent going in all the way to the detector, which is the highest vacuum uh, at around... Uh, and the minus fifth tor. 
Now here's where the, the tandem mass spectrometry or MS over MS or uh, collision-induced dissociation. You have, here's your ion beam of molecular peptide ions. You now turn peptides in sort of in, uh, they're each on their own, their own little space. And in the middle of this quadrupole, this, this magnetic uh, environment here, you bring in an inert gas like argon to collide with uh, these rapidly moving ions and they break, they will break the chain basically at any covalent bond. And if you think of the peptide at, uh, chain backbone as having three different covalent bonds, there's the peptide bond itself and then there's a carbon nitrogen bond and a, and a carbonyl uh, nitrogen bond, I'm uh, sorry, and a carbon-carbon bond. It can break at any of those three positions and then you'll generate a set of fragments uh, coming in from the N-terminus with three possible uh, C-terminal fragments and coming in from C-terminus cleaving at the same point, a whole series coming in that way. And as you're coming in from the N-terminus, uh, you give it A, B, and C depending on whether it breaks at the C-carbon-carbon bond, the carbon-nitrogen bond, and the nitrogen-carbon bond, A, B, and C respectively. And the same ones coming in from the C-terminus are called um, Z, Y, and X. And so, as it turns out, just empirically, if you, you, know, you sort through all the chemistry, it is, in most cases, it, uh, the peptide bond is the one that's most actively cleaved. And so the B ions and their complementary Y ions uh, dominate the picture. Now, the other ones will be present, especially if they come from a very abundant peptide. They, will, they can, uh, they can swamp out the B and Y ions for a, a less abundant peptide. But all other things being equal, the B and Y will dominate and most of the rest of the discussion will be about those. Okay. This is the closest picture we'll show of the ionization step. This is, this is a step which is, uh, has, not, has not been thoroughly enough studied in the sense that this ionization step where the droplet uh, of of aqueous and organic solvent coming out of the separation column is subjected to the vacuum. It, st it starts, the water starts uh, being released from the droplet. The protons, remember this is acidic media, associate with the molecular ion. They kind of explode because there's too much uh, positive charge in a small space until you finally have a, a molecular ion associated with one or two uh, net positive charges. Remember, we had an example just a little while ago that had a net positive charge of plus two. Uh, you don't need to have neutrality in this situation. Anyway, this is poorly understood in the sense that some peptides ionize much better than others. And we'll come back to this when we're talking about quantitation. But for right now, what we want to do is ask how do we analyze the complex spectra that comes out when you fragment, when you take First, you get a, a fairly simple spectrum, which is just the masses, a list of all the masses of all of the peptides. And remember, some will be weak and some will be strong uh, because of this, this uh, voodoo ionization. But then we break them. However, whatever the intensity of the original peptide was, we'll make a bunch of daughter ions, which will be the B ions coming in from the N terminus and the Y ions from the C terminus. And you'll have this big mixture, a nested set. They get increasingly large. Uh, as you get further from the N-terminus and the B-ion series and their complements. And the sum of the B-ion with its complementary Y-ion has to be the original molecular 
mass corrected for the chemistry that occurs right at the uh, cleavage. And so here's a real example. We're going to work, work, work through it so that you can see um, what happens to a typical peptide here in the upper right-hand corner. And uh, this is tandem mass spectrometry. Remember, there's a, if you think of it, there was a, uh, a single uh, mass uh, peptide that was then broken into all these little pieces. And the, the almost intact peptide will be on the, on the far end of the horizontal axis, which is the mass axis, close to 1,200 atomic mass units. And then uh, a relative abundance is, up, is the vertical axis, and it's, fair, it's just a, uh, related to the ion counts. And you can see there's uh, some variation here. This is not, not due to ionization. This is due to the cleavage efficiency of cleaving at each of the bonds uh, for the Y series, which is in blue here, and is the, tends to be the higher peaks, and the B series in red, which tends to be slightly lower peaks. And then you've got these little arrows, the darker arrows indicate the Y-ion series, that separate two adjacent peaks. Because what, what's the difference between those two peaks is the addition of one amino acid. And so the, the uh, focusing on the, the blue series, the Y-ions coming in from the C-terminus, the shortest Y, the Y1, would be just the C-terminal amino acid itself, which would be arginine, and its distance from the origin would be about the, uh, the mass of the arginine itself. And then you add a glycine to it, which is a small delta, and then an alanine, and an isoleucine, and serine, and so forth. And, and you can see here um, very clearly the leucine, and the asparagine, and the valine for that y on series, all the way down until the G is the last one documented, the N and the S at the, at the, at the highest molecular weight are not uh, visible. And actually, many of these things, you'll have very weak peaks uh, uh, essentially have missing peaks that, that uh, corresponding to one of the delta amino acids. So in that case, the distance between the two prominent peaks will be two amino acids. So you can see this starting to get to be a challenging pattern recognition problem because you've got all the B ions mixed in with the Y ions, and this is summarized in the next slide. Uh, the B ions are mixed in with the Y ions, and uh, some of the ions are missing. Uh, each ion has uh, a multiple isotopic forms that wasn't so evident in the previous slide, but you could, in that blow-up that I showed it a while back, you had that binomial distribution. Um, there is the lingering presence of A, uh, A, C, X, and, and Z type ions, where you've got cleavage of some of the other bonds. You can, ions can lose a water or an ammonia. You've got noise from other peptides and from contaminants in the system. And you've got amino acid modifications, which is not a contaminant or a bad thing. It's a good thing. This is what you're looking for. But these can be in trace amounts in this sort of system. Okay. Now, there are two ways to approach this awesome amount of data that you can get out of these. Remember, you've got all these multidimensions finally ending in this, this forest of B ions and Y ions and all the rest of it in there. And there are two approaches. One is, <coughs> we'll call it de novo peptide sequencing, which would be analogous to the de novo DNA sequencing that we were doing. And the other is, uh, if you tell me the sequence, then I'll find it in my data kind of game. Okay, it's, uh, 
it's doing a database search where you're limited to proteins that are very, very, to, to finding peptides that you already know about or can hypothesize from a genome sequence. So this is the first category. This is de novo sequencing, and it takes on all the challenges in the previous slide. It takes on the, the possibility of missing data for particular ion species that you think should be there, but for some reason are not efficiently cleaved by the argon in the collision-induced um, association. And it takes into account that you have to have one set of B ions, a nested set of masses from the intermus, that have to be complementary to this nested set you get coming in from C terminus. So this is dynamic programming, and you can probably count how many different times we've done a dynamic programming algorithm in this class. And so hopefully you're happy that you did at least one of them by hand. And this one we won't belabor, um, but here you can see how it kind of conceptually maps to the simplest one that we talked about at the beginning, which is comparing two amino acid sequences. There. The indels were caused by evolutionary change. Here, the, in, the insertions and deletions are due to a missing ion, due to inefficient cleavage in the gas phase. Um, this is further complicated by this necessity of, of essentially sequencing in both from the B and the Y simultaneously and making sure that you have the best combination of B and Y assignments. Okay, so that's de novo sequencing. Now, in uh, slide 29, we have the alternative, which is uh, by far more commonly applied. An example of the alternative, uh, which is, you tell me the sequence, I'll find it in my data, is Sequest, and where you're basically calculating the spectrum that you might expect for each peptide that you might expect in a genome. So you basically use the genome to predict the, the protein coding regions, use those to do a, a in silico digestion with trypsin, you basically cleave after every lysine and arginine, and maybe after some other ones there are, there are complicated rules where trypsin doesn't always cleave after lysines and arginines, and sometimes there'll be other proteases present, and you have to take those into account. In any case, you generate a virtual set of peptides, you generate a virtual set of mass peaks. Now, since we don't know the rules that determine the height of those mass peaks, we wish we did, uh, but we don't, so we just set it to unity, some arbitrary to make them all the same, so you're not, going to be, you're not going to be getting a great correlation coefficient based on the heights, but merely whether it's there or not. And that's what you do is you, every time you have a, a hit between your uh, predicted spectrum and the other one, no matter what the intensity of the other one is, uh, so you weight it on the observed intensity, but you, you have no real calculated intensity. And this correlation coefficient serves as a way of prioritizing your scores and if you have, uh, and very often the best score will be um, the database hit for the peptide that you want. Now, if you're expecting post-synthetic modifications, you need to tell the algorithm to add that appropriate mass to the appropriate amino acid. So, for example, if you expect a phosphoserine, you have to put the phosphate mass into the program and associate it with a serine. So the serine can be either a regular serine or a phosphoserine. So you have to... That's another complexity there. Okay, so now we've gone through the richness that you, of the separation methods. Separation is intimately connected with getting us to a mass spectrum that, which is clean enough to do either de novo sequencing or database searching. Now that we've got it identified, let's try to quantitate it. We can quantitate it one of two ways, just, with the, R, just the same as with the RNAs, either on an absolute scale or on a relative scale. What is involved? 
we will make an analogy to the RNA quantification methods, which I, I believe we've had something very similar to the left-hand side of slide 31 here when we talked about RNAs, all the ways we could quantitate them. A subset of these have an analog in the, in the protein domain on the right-hand side, side of the slide. So, for example, one of our favorite methods that we used was microarrays. That's the top line of the RNA. This is where you would have the gene segments, either oligonucleotides or cDNAs, immobilized on a microarray, fluorescently label your RNA and, and, and quantitate. Uh, for proteins, this is the, this, the equivalent would be an antibody array aimed at uh, unique features of each protein. This is in very early days because we're antibody limited. We do not have antibodies against every protein surface epitope, and they are not specific enough. There's a lot of crosstalk. We mentioned in the second line that, that microarrays could not measure the composition of, of alternative splices or the size of the messenger RNAs. That was best done by a northern blot, which me actually measured the size, but was, low was not high throughput. The equivalent for that for proteins is called a western. These are all puns on Ed Southern's name. Uh, the westerns... Uh, will allow you to measure the size of native or denaturing proteins um, and then detect them with antibodies. Again, antibody limited. If we had a technology breakthrough that would give us all the antibodies we need, just like we had it, it's, it's easy to dial up any nucleic acid you want just by uh, synthesis. Um, there's no real equivalent to PCR for a protein world. You can tag proteins with nucleic acids and do, do PCR in the nucleic acids, but there's no real direct uh, application on proteins. Reporter constructs basically work the same for each. You have something that you know is highly specific because you constructed it in, vi in vivo, um, but it it is a, a sum of all the RNA and protein uh, expression uh, steps that give you uh, the reporter uh, fluorescent in situ hybridization in the case of RNA or fluorescent in C2 antibodies in the case of proteins is a great way of correlating quasi-quantitative information with a subcellular or suborganismal localization. Tag counting is something equivalent for proteins and mass spectrometry can be used for differential display. Okay. We have, what are the sort of numbers of molecules we have? Well, ballpark when we're dealing with quantitation. Slide 32, we, we t it depends on your organism. Some of the simplest ones, like E. coli and yeast, uh, we mentioned that the messenger RNA molecules might be less than um, one per cell, just stochastic fluctuations. And uh, in a human cell, it's a, probably a fairly good approximation or assumption that almost every nucleotide in the human genome can be transcribed, uh, in a, some, maybe there's some leakiness um, where on the order of 1 in 10 to the 4 cells will have a little leakiness at any particular uh, nucleotide. So that's kind of the background level is 10 to the minus 4th per cell, and it's really only achievable detection with reverse transcriptase PCR. The entire transcriptome of a human cell is on the order of, 10, uh, is on the order of uh, half a million transcripts messenger RNAs. 
And so if any particular messenger RNA got up to 10 to the fifth, it would dominate. And then this happens in some cases, like reticulocytes, maybe 90% of the messenger RNA might be uh, globin. Now for proteins, you'll have, typically have bursts of proteins. You have one messenger RNA, you might get 10 to 1,000 proteins made depending on the organism. And uh, so you typically have a, a corresponding amplification in the last line. Now, when we, when people assess casually whether a particular method is quantitative or not, they, uh, they can be easily intimidated. So they might say, you might, I've commented that the ionization of, uh, so the ESI stands for electrospray ionization, mass spectrometry, uh, if, the, if you take a protein and cleave it with trypsin, in principle, every triptych fragment, since trypsin cleaves pretty close to completely, uh, fairly easily, uh, every triptych fragment, every peptide should be equimolar. If you now inject that into the HPLC, into the mass spec, every uh, peak Integrated intensity should be equal because they're all equal molar. And then when you find that no, they vary over uh, two orders of magnitude, that is to say some are 100 times high, more intense peaks than others, then you might get discouraged and say, oh, this isn't a quantitative science at all. This is, uh, you know, this is, I can't deal with uh, a factor of 100 difference. But I think what you need to you need to reassess that when people say that mass spectrometry is not quantitative. The two requirements are that for quantitation is that you have reproducibility and that you have a way of calibrating uh, or or calculating. Uh, if you can calculate from first principles, then you don't need calibration. If you can't, if you, if it's too empirical, then you need calibration. But you do not need that. Uh, every disparate object um, behaves exactly the same way. You do not, not every peptide has to give the same quantitative answer. Uh, simply has to be reproducible and calibratable with that same peptide. And so here's an example of establishing, two examples in a row of establishing the reproducibility. Here, this is from that uh, ribosomal protein experiment that I showed uh, earlier with the complexes, the sedimentation velocity, and the multi-dimensions. And this is just, you, measure, you do a measurement on day one, and you do the whole experiment over on day two, and then you compare the uh, intensity of the, of the peaks, um, and you get what is a fairly good straight-line relationship over uh, on a log-log curve over about little over three uh, logs. There were many moving parts in that experiment. There were all those different dimensions, and the whole experiment was not designed to be quantitative. There were no internal controls, and so forth and so on. Nevertheless, this is a, this is a good um, starting point for uh, convincing yourself or determining whether something is reproducible enough that you can make it quantitative. Here's another way of measuring the reproducibility. Uh, that one was a correlation coefficient, linear correlation coefficient on a log-log plot. 
Here is the coefficient of variation. I think we may have mentioned this before. This is just the standard deviation normalized by the mean. In the upper left-hand part of this slide, you can see that the, the CV, or coefficient of variation, is just the standard deviation divided by the mean. So you can report it in terms of percentages uh, variation. So here, with a calibration standards of peptides, you get somewhere between 2% and 28% coefficient of variation. That means you can trust these things to be within 2 to 28% of their absolute amounts um, when you calibrate them. So these two are just two examples of uh, that should reassure you that there is reproducibility and, cal and you can calibrate. Now, uh, calibration can be uh, an expensive proposition, uh, but there, but there are for, there are various motivations for measuring, uh, quantitating both proteins and nucleic acids on absolute scale. And for example, you might want to uh, compare them to each other. You might want to say, to what extent is it the case that the most abundant proteins result from the most abundant messenger RNAs? Or you could imagine a, a world where these are completely independent since one is transcription factors, the other is you know, translation factors. There's no reason that they necessarily are synced up. Or you could imagine a hypo, hy, hypothesis where it's a lot of work to make a lot of protein and so everything has to be working right for the most abundant ones. Uh, and for the least abundant ones you can have a little more slop. So this, this analysis um, uh, critiqued a little bit in the, in, the, in the subsequent paper that we'll talk about uh, after the break is, uh, is can be interpreted as being consistent when you include all the proteins. You have a very good correlation coefficient. This is a linear Pearson correlation coefficient. Um, uh, but as you as you restrict yourself to the lowest abundance proteins, it it sort of falls apart. You have uh, less significant um, Pearson correlation coefficients. So let's take a little break, and we'll talk about. Uh, uh, critiquing this a little bit and, and improving and asking other motivations for putting protein on absolute scale and putting doing ratios.